I like how Edwin's prayer request and Rick's song kind of converge there. <laughs> Pretty good. I love it when God does that and uh, things just kind of connect. We were working our way through the letters to the seven churches, and I'm not sure how you feel about that because I'm not approaching the book of Revelation sort of as maybe some people would expect. I'm not approaching it in sort of a technical, detail, interpretive, what does this mean, what is this, and how does this relate to that, and all those kind of things. I'm kind of approaching this chunk of the book of Revelation from more of a pastoral perspective. I'm looking at it as a pastor. I'm looking at it for us from a pastoral, church-wide perspective. And not, I'm kind of, you probably noticed, and maybe we're fr- I'm kind of skipping over some details and things you'd like me to really drill down on and, and figure out what does this mean and what does this symbol mean or what does this image mean or what does this word mean. But I'm kind of skipping over that because I think the pastoral side is, is more important for us as a church because of the, the new phase, that the new life experience we're going into with the, with the new pastor coming. And so I'm looking at it as more of a pastoral perspective as we look at these letters. And so what can we learn? It's kind of like these are report cards, okay? Um, what comes to mind when I say report cards? For me, uh, grade 9 math, 59. Uh, grade 10 physics, I think it was in the 50s. I'm not sure. But it's kind of like these are, that's why I'm looking at these. They're, they're like report cards. But they're not individual report cards. They're a group report card. So if I go back to my grade nine class, it's like, um, it's funny, I, I remember the names of the teachers of these classes. I can't remember all my other teachers, but I remember that uh, Mr. Fitcher was my grade nine math teacher, and Mr. Reed was my grade 10 physics teacher. And so it's kind of like Mr. Fisher giving a class report card. And in some ways, that's good, right? Because there were the, the math people that, that took, they, they could, work, grade nine math for me was word problems. Just, you know, a train is traveling so far, there's X number of people on the train, they get off at so many stations, how many people are left on the train? I, I, I was still back in Albuquerque. I don't know, I, you know, just couldn't do word problems. And grade 10 physics, well, it still haunts me with any kind of technology, mechanical stuff. I, I just, but it's a class report. So there's going to be people who can figure out word problems. There's going to be people who just, physics just clicks for them, and, and they, they get it. In some ways, a group report card is helpful to schmucks like me, right, who <laughs> can't figure it out. But these are like group report cards. But it's not just for school. It's for life, right? These seven letters are like group report cards, not just for Sunday, but for life. Because back to what Rick was talking about in terms of focus, Revelation chapter 1 reminded us that the focus is Jesus. And here's this incredible image of Jesus in all his splendor, in all his glory, in all his power, in all his perfection and his holiness. And all. Here's this incredible picture of Jesus, and these churches get their report card from Jesus with this in mind. So, so it's a report card, not just for Sundays, not just when we're together in the church, but for life. I don't know if that's good news or bad news. I don't know if, if 
if you like that idea or not, but that's kind of what they are. And I think that's really important for us to look at not just our faith in our own eyes, but in our eyes as, as a family, as a church family, as a congregation. And so we come to the fourth city on our tour, uh, the city of Thyatira. So you can see it there. We've been to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira. It's the fourth city. Thyatira is probably the least significant and the least in size of all these seven churches. Uh, there are some uh, ruins and there are some archaeological kind of things there, but it, it, it's not much and it hasn't been excavated very much and it hasn't been... Um, it, it's actually a little park in the center of the city. The current city is kind of where it is. It's just uh, some ruins there, and that's kind of all it is. So unlike the other churches, but uh, Thyatira is, some of you may know, is the city from where which Lydia, uh, the seller of purple, came in Acts chapter 16 when she, um, and the women at prayer in Acts chapter 16, Lydia came from Thyatira, and it does, does signify a little bit what was the significance of the city. It was very much a... Um, a commercial kind of city. It, 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 it sounds like there were certain fabrics and certain linens and certain dyes that were significant in the area, and they, they could get that. And uh, and it, it was very much about uh, commerce and clothing and fabric and uh, the trade guilds, the, the guilds and the um, various groups of artisans and so on was very important in the city. So it's very much a commercial, but it's very small. It's very insignificant, uh, probably the least significant of all the seven churches uh, that Jesus sends sends a letter to. So let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Surprisingly, it's the longest of the letters uh, to the most insignificant of the churches. Revelation chapter 2, if you're working with the Blue Bibles, page 1138. And let's look at the letter for the church in Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2 and verse... 18. And as usual, it begins with the description. It takes us back to the focus from chapter 1, the description of who Jesus is. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God. It's the only place, surprisingly, the only place in the whole book of Revelation we are so used to singing about and talking about Jesus as the Son of God, that's the only place that phrase appears in the whole book of Revelation. For all the talk about Jesus and what God is going to do and who Jesus is, is the only place he is referred to as the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Both of these descriptions come from the image in chapter 1, and they, they remind us of a couple of things. They remind us of the power of Jesus. They remind us, uh, the burnished bronze idea kind of goes back to sort of the, the furnace and the fire and the blast furnace that uh, purifies the metal and so there's this idea of purifying fire, uh, solid, stable, um, substantial. So there, there's this picture of Jesus of his authority, of his power, and his purity. And that's how the letter is introduced. Then we find out what Jesus knows. Verse 19. Not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus knows. Verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Pretty brief compared to the problem in the church that's going to take another four or five verses. There's not a lot of time spent on what's good, what's going on well in the church in Thyatira as a, as a body, as a group, as a congregation. It's brief, but it's pretty significant. Um, 
What, what are the things that are acknowledged, that are commended? Uh, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. Um, the first letter that was probably ever written, 1 Thessalonians, that was written by Paul to Thess Thess Christians in Thessalonica, talks about uh, your work of faith, your labor of love, your perseverance of hope. So if you were to go back about 60 years, this, and the first letter that came out, one of the first things Paul talks about in that first letter 60 or so years ago is faith, love, and hope, perseverance, and work, and so on. So it's kind of a foundational, these are foundational things. These, these, are, these are things that, that really matter. Some people think Galatians was written before, that's, there's some debate between Galatians when it was written. And, and, but even if Galatians was written before Thessalonians, one of the things Paul says is what matters, after all this debate about law and faith and works, he says what matters is faith working itself out through love. And that's what you've got here. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance. And so they got the basics. I don't think there needs a lot of description here because these were the basics from the very get-go when the church began and what the apostles were looking for and what Jesus wanted from the churches. So the, the church in Thyatira is getting it right. And not only that, they're doing more than they did at first. They're growing. They've grown, maybe not in numbers, but at least in their own, in their own, in their own relationship with God. They, they've grown in terms of more and more exercising their gifts and their, um, their faith and they've grown in all of them. You put all that together, and that's no small potatoes, right? Pretty significant. But it's brief. It's to the point. And then we get in verse 22, or verse 20, I mean, to what Jesus is against. That's what Jesus knows and what he's in favor of. Now, verse 20, what he knows and what he's against. Nevertheless, I have this against you. He's talking to the body, right? He's talking to the various congregations, various house churches throughout the city, however many that is. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So it's as if Jesus now calls out the church totally together for this false teacher that they have allowed, that they have tolerated, that they have uh, permitted to have some um significance in their in their in their congregation. And so there's a couple things happening here. If you know the story from the Old Testament about Jezebel, Jezebel was the one, the, the uh, queen that led the children of Israel into sin and immorality. And so there's an element of sort of going back to the Old Testament to identify the sinfulness and the waywardness of this false teacher. It's a very serious warning because that Jezebel situation, Jezebel and Ahab back in the Old Testament, is a very key historical event in the history of the people of God. And her teaching is leading, Jesus says, interesting enough, her teaching is leading my servants, just at the end of verse 20, her teaching is leading my servants into sexual immorality. The word here, and 
don't like using Greek a lot, but I think this word is pretty easy for anybody to figure out. It's the Greek word porneia. Not hard to figure where that goes and the, the uh, aspects related to that. So the word, the sexual immorality, porneia, and eating food sacrificed to idols. Um, and porneia, sexual immorality, spiritual, uh, uh, sexual immorality and adultery and so on, can also be a, a figurative word for spiritual adultery. So there's an element of sort of the, the physical stuff going on, but at the same time, the spiritual adultery, the, the, the cheating on God kind of thing. Because she's leading, Jesus says, his servants into sin. Now this food sacrifice to idols is directly related to this whole trades and guilds and linens and commerce and fashion and, and fabrics and stuff that was going on in Thyatira. Because every guild, we've talked about this before, every guild, every... every if it was carpentry, they didn't have it then, but if it was the electrician's guild, if it was the um, pipe fitter's guild, they didn't have it then. But if you, every guild had their own um, god that they worshipped. They would uh, offer sacrifices to for, for success and for productivity and for prosperity. Every guild, every group had their own um, god that was sort of their patron saint, if you will, their patron god. And so if you were an artisan, if you were a member of a trade, um, to be part of that group, you had to recognize the God of that particular group. And there would be, if not at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, some kind of feast. Now remember, there's, there's no days off here. There's no weekends, right? Everybody works seven days a week. You just go, you ply your trade, and then you go home seven days a week. So... In a lot of these, every day there was some offering, some bit of incense or something uh, to acknowledge their dependence on the God of that particular trade. And there were often feasts and tributes. And it was, it was just pervasive in society. You couldn't be a follower of Jesus and not sort of come into contact with something about that God or that patron deity for that particular group. And so that's where the food sacrifice to idols comes in here. And so there is this sort of compromise. There is this accommodation. There is this assimilation into the local culture. Uh, I, I, use, I used the line before, um, and it's just the title of a book, but I think it summarizes, it's one of those books that just summarizes things really well. Uh, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And so if Jesus is Lord, nothing else can be Lord. But in worshiping the God of your guild or your trade, um, you are acknowledging that they are Lord. Either Jesus is, or Caesar or Satan is. And interesting, some, some scholars think, if we read, uh, just, let's just go on to verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, some think that there's something related here to this food sacrifice to idols thing that goes back to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Those of you that were in Graham's class, Working through the book of Corinthians, you talked about food sacrifice to idols. And there's a tough part around chapter 8 and chapter 9 where one minute Paul says an idol is nothing, and yet at the same time, it's something. And it, it's one of those passages in Paul, it's just kind of, okay, Paul, is it or isn't it? Like, help me out here. You can't, it can't be both. And the suspicion is that this... The, this prophetess Jezebel, by the name of the, in the letter, whether that's her real name or not, we don't know, 
was kind of saying, well, you can participate in these things, but they're not really God's, and it's okay. That's sort of the deep secret. Well, this is what you really, you know, understand about how how Satan works and how these these sacrifices work, and it, it's okay for you to participate. That's one of the assumptions. But God's punishment is pretty clear and, and not very pretty, right? Verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Interesting, the repenting of her ways, not their ways, the repenting of her ways. And I will strike her children, her followers, dead. That doesn't sound far off from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for those of you who've worked with Graham in 1 Corinthians, about the Lord's Supper. For this reason, many are weak and sick, and some of you sleep. It's not. The, the, the punishment is not far removed from that, that in principle. So this, this is really, really serious. The book of Revelation is a story of God's faithfulness to his holiness and to his righteousness. Sin must and will be punished. Justice demands it. And so the, the, the song we sang this morning that talked about the weight of sin and how it almost puts me in my own little prison, right? Um, sin must and will be punished. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And punishment is the justice that is demanded. And there's a lesson for all the churches here. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will all the churches will know all seven in our little circuit. It's the only place. Of all the other letters, seven, other six letters, it's the only one that sort of broadens to encompass all the churches. So this is this is pretty significant. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Ah, see? There's the report card part. There's there's the report card part for all of us, together, corporately, as a group. And the call is to repent. The call is, and it, it comes up a number of times in the, um, in the earlier verses, in verses 20 and 21, about uh, Jezebel and those who follow her uh, need to repent and turn back to God, or God will bring his punishment and his judgment on them. I wonder, as, as this letter's read in this church, and so they're sitting in this room, in a house church, and they're sitting in the room, whatever the largest room in, in the house is, and they're sort of probably sitting in some kind of circle, and somebody's reading this letter to them. I wonder what it was like as the letter's being read, and, and he talks about the specifics about Jezebel, the prophetess, and the sexual immorality, and the food sacrificed to idols. I wonder where the eyes went in that circle, and, and who knew what about who. And the call is to turn back, to turn around, to return to God. So this, this, this is... Uh, the Jezebel connection to the Old Testament is extremely significant. That was one of the, the lowest times in the history of the nation of Israel. But as I was reading that, I got thinking about, here's Thyatira, 
and their tolerance of this wicked woman and her teaching. If we go back earlier on in chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus, so the, the, the church in Thyatira was tolerant, too tolerant. The church in Ephesus was intolerant. And we got this interesting combination in the same chapter between church number 1 and church number 4. Church number 1 was intolerant. Church number 4, Thyatira, is, is tolerant. The church in Ephesus was strong on truth, strong on doctrine, strong on purity. But if you remember chapter 2, that church, the one thing God had against them, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So Ephesus, the intolerant, they know, what's the word, no. They didn't, it was either right or it was wrong, and if it's wrong, you're out, kind of thing. Ephesus was strong on truth, doctrine, and purity, but they had left their first love. Thyatira had tolerated and permitted this false teacher to teach and to gain disciples. The punishment on Ephesus is much more severe than the punishment on Thyatira, because the punishment on Ephesus, we saw, chapter 2, verse 5, Ephesus, consider how you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you do not repent, church is done. The doors are closed. The lights are out. God will turn out the lights on them, even though they hated what God hated. Nothing like that happens. Nothing like that is told in the, in the letter to the church at, at Thyatira. I don't know about you, when I read something like that, I just kind of wonder, well, why? How come, how come God is, is so definitive with the church in Ephesus, and as much as they were intolerant of any variation, any diversion, any, any compromise, any accommodation, they had left their first love, and unless they found it, God was going to shut down. I mean, taking out the lampstand, he's saying, I'm rejecting it. I'm saying... It is no more. Now, there's no question that the Bible is very clear, New Testament is very clear, that the tolerance of false teachers is a very short, a very small range of tolerance. And as evil and as wicked as this group was that was in Thyatira, I mean, there's no question, right? Sexual immorality, uh, spiritual adultery. I got to dig a little bit, right? And I think one of the first things I need to say is there's a big difference between false teachers and people with different views or interpretations of Scripture, okay? Sometimes I think we, we forget that there is sort of a range of understanding as far as Scripture is concerned, and at some point you cross a line and it becomes false teaching. There's a big difference between a false teacher and people with different views from me or different interpretations of Scripture. Um, the disciples didn't like the Samaritans because they, like most Jewish people, they didn't like the Samaritans because the Samaritans worshipped differently than they did. And the, when Jesus uh, 
He wouldn't be allowed to go through Samaria. The disciples said, let's call down fire and brimstone on them. And Jesus said, no, we'll just go around them. Right? Romans chapter 14 talks about eating and drinking and the observance of days. And in Romans chapter 14, Paul says, hey, there's going to be differences. There's going to be variations. Um, what people eat, whether some drink and some don't drink, and the observance of days. And Paul says, uh, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but his righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So there's a, first of all, I think we need to understand the difference between false teaching and just different views. I'm not sure the church in Ephesus understood that totally. At the same time, we kept coming in contact with this idea of tolerance. I've always thought tolerance has a lot to do with grace coming under the umbrella of God being long-suffering and patient and slow to anger, and how much he puts up with from me. I Tolerance, I am grateful that God is gracious, that God is tolerant. But there's this idea of grace and truth, right? Jesus, in John chapter 1, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Both, together, grace and truth. And I think the challenge for you and me is always when when the Bible gives us these two things together, it's, it's the challenge of how do we put those two together? Because sometimes they seem really at odds with each other. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Later on, Paul says we are to speak the truth in love as we grow up into Christ. You ever had anybody speak the truth to you in love? Usually people who think they need to speak the truth to you, the love side is sort of lacking. Or they might even say, I'm just speaking this to you in love. And you might say, well, I haven't heard you, seen you care about me in any other way, shape, or form until now. And a lot of people have just said no to church, right? Because that's the kind of experience they've had, how they, how they were treated. Um, a lot of truth with not a lot of love. And so we got this challenge how do, how, do we, how do we balance these two things? How do, we, how do we have truth and grace? Well, these churches had to do some balancing act, right? As, as followers of Jesus, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't isolate ourselves from the world. We don't set ourselves up on some little uh, commune or some little, um, little village that's just Christians only. And so to isolate ourselves from the world, we know we, we, we're in the world. We're just not of the world. And so being in the world, but not, not getting sucked into the ways of the world and not acting like the world, right? And so, so the, the Jezebel factor here, they were just acting like everybody else in the city of Thyatira. They were um, eating food sacrificed to idols. Immorality was uh, flagrant and blatant and rampant. How, how do we function in the world but not get sucked into the world system? Right? Two things, but how do we how do we hold those two together? The other tension that, that we see here, um, faith and works. Right? Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Well, we aren't judged by our deeds because it's about faith, but we are judged by our deeds. We are there, there is a report card there, there, for all of us. There is a report card. Faith without works is dead. If, if, if we don't live out our faith, then it's not real faith. 
but our works don't make us right in God's sight. And so we, so there, there's three things. Um, grace and truth, in the world, not of the world, faith and works. These things that, that remind me how dependent I am, how, how much I need God's help in sorting that out and figuring that out. But notice, notice that what's going to happen in Thyatira is God is going to do the, there was, a, there was a line in the first song we sang, it's not my war to win, was in, in the first song we sang this morning. It, interesting. Because if you read the, the account of Thyatira, it's not like God is telling the church to clean house. It's not like God says to the, the leaders of the church, get rid of Jezebel and all her followers. It, it, there's nothing like that. God is going to take care of Jezebel. And actually, and I read somebody said, well, when it comes to false teaching, usually the solution is just to avoid them. And I go, really? Wasn't quite sure. So I went back and I read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, because a lot of the teaching in the New Testament about false teachers is there. And yeah, there's occasions when Timothy or the leaders in the church uh, or in Titus, they're told to rebuke a false teacher, they're told to command a false teacher, but for the most part, the common advice is just avoid them. Let them go. Leave them alone. And so that kind is what happens here, because Thyatira Church is not told to clean house, uh, sweep them out the door. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secret. So here's, here's what the Okay, we've identified, we've called out the false teacher and her followers. Now here's what the rest of you need to do. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. That's like being invited to a... a church conference entitled something like this. Maintaining. That's the way to go. Like, who goes to a conference on maintenance? Right? Like, hold on to what you have. That's, that's the solution. That's the advice to the rest of the church. Hold on to what you have. Hold fast. There, there's, a, there's a town. Uh, when we used to go to PA to visit our son, when he was posted in PA, there, there's a town. Is it Highway 4 that goes, uh, you take off Highway 11, you go north to PA. Is it Highway 4 or Highway 3? I forget which one. Anyway, there's a town called Holdfast. I always loved driving through Holdfast. It, it reminded me of the scene in Master and Commander, the movie with Russell Crowe back in the 90s, where they're on the ship and it's a storm, and one of the mates has, has the word Holdfast tattooed on his knuckles. It's just, hold on to the oars. Hold on as tight as you can. Um... Hold on to what you have. I don't think a church seminar on maintenance and maintaining what you have would draw, draw too many people. But it brings us back to another tension. Another two things, a both and kind of thing. There's, there's tradition and there's change. There's foundations and then there's growth, right? That's kind of, we go back to the basics. We go back to the, the core of our faith and the core of our belief. And at the same time, there's growth and there's development. And someone said that tension is at the core of Christianity. None of us live in our foundation. None of us experience church like they did in the first century. 
2,000 years of growth. The foundational truths are still the same, but so much else has changed. And you know what happens if you go to one side or the other, right? Too much tradition? You'd probably be the only one here if there was too much tradition. We'd be like relics. We'd be something from the past. Or too much change, and nobody knows whether we're coming or going. You lose your moorings. Uh, one of the former presidents of the Christian Missionary Alliance wrote a book called Historical Drift. You lose your moorings, you shift. So somewhere between never changing and somewhere between always changing, and notice I did the never changing on the left. The traditionalists, the conservatives were on the left. On my left, not your left. <laughs> never changing, always changing, right? The way it was, the way it needs to be. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that tells us to avoid all extremes. We need both. We need to understand our foundation. We need to understand the core of our faith. But at the same time, we need to know how to understand, how to communicate that gospel in the day in which we live. And what that looks like. You need both. You need, you need grace and truth. You need to know that you're in the world, but you're not ever from the world. You need to know that sometimes things need to be held on to, and sometimes things need to change. And finally, there's a promise. Every letter ends with a promise. To those who are victorious and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. They will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like the potter's clay. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give them the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, the letter ends after being told to hold on to, hang on to what you have is the main response. The promise is partnership with Jesus in his future. Actually, the, part, the promise is Jesus himself, right? I will also give them the morning star, which typically seems to refer to Jesus. The gift they receive is Jesus, and we're back to the focus on Jesus again. So that's the letter to the church at Thyatira. In going over material on Revelation chapter 2, I came across... Uh, there was a stretch of time for about four or five years I subscribed to what's called Encounter with God. Uh, scripture Union, don't know if any of you are familiar with Scripture Union. That's a great resource. It's more of a Bible study than a devotional, but I uh, go back and I find the, the daily study that's related to the particular passage I'm working on. And so I went back and I found the one related to Thyatira. And I thought they just did a great job of sort of summarizing what's the takeaway this morning? What's, what, what do we walk away with? And here's what they said. What is most remarkable about this message is the importance it gives to this insignificant city. I told you Thyatira is probably the smallest. It's the least significant. It's kind of forgotten in the midst of all these other churches and all these other cities. This message, first of all, they say, this message is by far the long, and that's not hard for you to see, this message is the longest of any of the messages to the seven churches, more than twice the length of the shortest. And it kind of appears to have a, a central place as kind of a high point. This is church number four, three before it, three after it. 
Only here do Jesus' dealings with the congregation promise insight to all the churches. Interesting. Only here does the promise to those who conquer have cosmic significance as they share in the destiny of the Lord's anointed in ruling the nations. So it goes way beyond here's how God is going to bless them, right? There's sort of this cosmic picture of ruling with Jesus and serving him. And only here is the gift to believers, Jesus himself, the morning star. So the, the writer, as they reflected on this, said, wow, here's this no-name place. And it seems like there's just a lot of stuff packed into this letter. And the writer says, this reminds us that God does not measure significance by outward appearances. Rather, as the one with eyes like blazing fire, and the one with eyes whose eyes roam and to and fro about the earth, seeking those who seek him, as the one with eyes like blazing fire, he looks beyond the superficial as he makes his judgments by searching hearts and minds. God does not measure significance by outward appearance. Small church, kind of a struggling church, seem to have a big mess on their hands, seem to have a huge problem that they hadn't dealt with. And yet all this seems to be an acknowledgement of their significance in God's eye. I think there's a good lesson there for us as well. Uh, it's not about size. It's not about even how healthy we are, right? Go back to what Rick said about the focus on Jesus. Working with the basics, doing more than we did at first, different than we were before, but recognizing that, yeah, God does not measure significance by outward appearances.